You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. If you're working on your own, you can get stuck inside your own head where you're having a conversation and you're worrying and angsting inside your own head. And you can literally develop sort of weird, fictitious, paranoid beliefs about what your bosses might like or dislike because you're not having those water cooler conversations. Investing in the market is about more than just money. It's about investing in your future and your choices. It's investing in you. If you're looking to optimize your investment strategy, visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of Her Money. We have heard so much so much about the great resignation that it is honestly hard to believe that that phrase is only about a year old. I looked it up. It was first coined by a management professor in May of 2021. And since then, the movement has fundamentally changed so much about how we think about our jobs and our priorities in life. We have never felt more comfortable and confident asking for what we deserve from the companies we work for. Still, in late 2022, 40% of workers are thinking about leaving their jobs in the next three to six months. And these are the ones who are not quiet quitting. They are hoping to find new jobs with higher pay, more advancement, greater flexibility, and a healthier work culture. Right now, In case you were wondering, there are about two job openings for every person who's out there looking. Many people are also leaving traditional jobs to start their own businesses. And so far, 2022 has been great for entrepreneurs. From January to July, the Census Bureau reported nearly three million new business applications. All of this is to say that people have more choices in where and how they want to work than ever before. And while we're seeing more employees advocate for themselves, there's another side to this equation that we should talk about. We don't talk about often enough. That's what managers can do to make their companies better places to work. With valuable workers ready to pack up and head out, it's more important than ever for managers to recognize that it's up to them to make their company the place to be. But if you are new to management or you grew into it without any formal training, maybe you don't know exactly where to start. How do you recruit talent? How do you retain talent? How do you run a department that produces great results while being kind, empathetic, and flexible with your employees? Today, we're going to answer those questions and many more. We're going to do it with Jim Edwards. Jim is the founding editor of Business Insider UK. He's managed teams for more than two decades, and he's got a new book out. It's called Say Thank You for Everything, The Secrets of Being a Great Manager, Strategies and Tactics that Get Results. Jim, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you for being here. And I should mention that Catherine Tuggle is a good friend of Jim's. They worked together for many years. I asked her to sit in on this interview so that, as she put it, she could call bullshit if need be. So we've got her in the pod as well. Hey, Catherine. Hi, Jean. I'm ready. 
<laughs> okay, good. So Jim, I heard that this book actually started as an email that you sent a friend in 2016. Can you tell me that story? Yeah, sure. The friend was Alison Chantel, who is now the editor-in-chief of Fortune magazine. Uh, but at the time, she worked with us at Insider. And she had just been promoted to editor-in-chief of Business Insider. And it was a huge step up for her. And I think she had to supervise 100 people or more, something like that. So I called her up to say congratulations and just to say, you know, if you need anything from me, let me know. But I was really happy that she got that job because I'd worked with her for a long time and she was good. And she basically said, I'm terrified and I need all the advice I can get. So I went back to my desk and I did write her an email that had 19 pieces of advice in it. It was sarcastically titled 19 Pieces of Unsolicited Advice. And that actually was the original title for the book, 19 Pieces of Unsolicited Advice, but my publisher didn't like it. <laughs> so... <laughs> But the very final piece of advice in that email was say thank you for everything. And basically said, if someone does something for you, tell them thank you. Tell them you notice their work, you appreciate it. When they do a good job, tell them you know, out loud and publicly, thank you for doing that. It was really noticeable. You can kind of diffuse a lot of workplace tension if you know that your boss actually gives a shit and actually appreciates what you did. The news business is like famously toxic for management. Most mm -hmm. newsrooms are horrible places to work, <laughs> and I'm happy to name them, but you know, there's a lot of shouting, there's a lot of yelling, there's a lot of speed and deadline pressure, and it's very common just to go to work and for no one to ever say thank you. The stereotype of this is that scene in Mad Men where Elizabeth Moss complained to Don, to Don Draper, why do you never give me credit for the successful campaigns we run? And he like winds up and screams at her, that's what the money is for! But I think a lot of employers sort of work that way. They're just like, we're giving you a paycheck. That is the thank you. And that's enough. I mean, weirdly, it's often not. Yeah. People really want to know what you think and that you're valued. So if you took the 19 pieces of advice, the 19 original pieces of advice, what are the ones that make somebody a really great manager as opposed to a manager who's just okay? You can't just do like one thing and become a good manager. Because good management is like a set of practices. For instance, one thing that I thought was really interesting is a lot of management involves going to your people and saying, hey, I need you to do this. So you're in this default mode of adding tasks to people's workload the whole time. And employees, for obvious reasons, tend to say yes, because they don't want to say no to their bosses, right? They want to demonstrate that they're good workers. So they tend to say yes to everything, even if you're piling work onto them and they're becoming overloaded. And this is one way that employees eventually burn out. So one thing you can do is to, first of all, just ask them what's on their plate, or better yet, encourage them to tell you, you know, I'd love to do this task, but I have 13 other things to do today. What do you actually want me to achieve? And at that point, my method is to ask them to list what they think they have to do, to rank it in order of importance. And then I just start crossing off the bottom ones because they're too trivial. There's absolutely no point in attempting to do the least important things on the list. You should absolutely be focusing on the top things on the list and making it clear to your team, you know, I will take work away from you if it means getting the most important things done. That's the way to go. And there's two interesting things about that. First of all, bosses don't generally tell their people, you know, I will take work away from you. You know, I will make your life easier. So that sounds good, right? The second thing is people often decline the offer because they like to control their own to-do lists. And they will say, okay, well, actually, I'll decide what to do and what gets done and what doesn't, which has the exact same result. People like to be in control. It's a good and useful technique to be able to say to people, if you think you've got too much on, 
I'm going to reduce your workload because in any business, as you know, there are things that absolutely have to get done. And then there's a bunch of other stuff that, frankly, if it gets dropped, no one notices. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So when you look at managers and you think about first-time managers versus somebody who's been in it for a while, what are the biggest mistakes that you see the first-time managers making that you kind of learn from quickly or hopefully you learn from quickly? So one common mistake, I think, is when you're a first-time manager, you might be given a very small team to run. And it could be just like one other person you're supervising or two or the small team, I would say, is anything up to five. And this is not terrifically difficult. Like it's actually, it's reasonably easy to supervise four people, right? Or five people. You're probably sat near each other in the office, can have an ongoing conversation across the day. People will stay on the same page because there's so few of you. And, you know, if there's a problem, they can ask you a question and you're right there. So the communication is good. If you go above five, things become complicated really quickly and really weird. You know, if you have a team of eight people and you try to have a meeting, one thing that will happen is that some of them won't be there. They'll be visiting clients, they'll be talking to sources, they'll be in a different meeting, they'll be at lunch, they'll be in the bathroom, one of them will be sick. Suddenly, it's impossible to get everyone on the same page or everyone in the same place altogether. I mean, if you've ever tried to schedule eight people's calendars, it's really tough. And the mistake is trying to manage a bigger team the same way you would manage a small team. And it's two different skills. It's two different jobs. It's two different skills. You need two different types of communication. And I made this mistake. And I want to be quite clear with your listeners that one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I was plainly not the best manager who ever walked the earth. And I made a ton of mistakes. Uh, You know, I did some good things. But at the end of the process, at the end of my 10 years at Insider, I was like, well, I've learned a lot about how to run teams, but I really wish someone had told me this in the beginning. I'm thinking about how we work today. We work remotely. Our team is all over the place. And I have to think if you're the manager of that team, that complicates it. Because I agree with you. When I worked in a newsroom, and I've worked in plenty, and you can hear the conversations that all of the people in the next cubicle are having or at the next desk are having, you do stay on the same page. But once you have to slack them in order to keep yourselves on the same page, things get harder. Yeah. So how do you apply what you're talking about in this new remote environment? Yeah, it is really difficult. A thing we noticed at Insider when the pandemic hit and we all started working from home is that we started getting problems and miscommunications inside the team that we previously didn't. Like people started believing things or worrying about things or stressing about things that were absolutely not issues. They would, they would worry that they would get fired if they did certain things wrong. We, we were like, we've literally never done that. You know, why are you worrying about this? And the answer is because if you're in the office and you have a problem, you just ask the person sitting next to you, you know, should I do this or should I not do this? And then the person sitting next to you says, don't do that because they don't care. And you have the answer to your question instantly and the problem just goes away. But if you're working on your own, You can get sort of stuck inside your own head where you're having a conversation and you're worrying and angsting inside your own head. And you can literally develop sort of weird, fictitious, paranoid beliefs about what your bosses might like or dislike because you're not having those water cooler conversations. You know, you're not getting coffee with people in the kitchen and you're not just not absorbing stuff by osmosis. So we did notice that. And it is really, really difficult. There's two things you have to bear in mind. First of all, the whole communication aspect becomes much more important. Like you have to really over communicate. 
a lot of management is just about repetition. It's about saying the same thing over and over again in as many different media and formats as possible. Tell them in Slack, tell them in a DM, tell them in an email, tell them in a live meeting, go into the office and tell them the only person who's hearing this over and over again is you. Most people are not hearing it repeatedly, but it does feel like you are. <laughs> and that's an executive recently who described, he was the, he's the CEO and the founder of his company, but he, he describes himself as the chief repetition officer because he feels like this is, you know, my life is Groundhog Day. It's just, I tell people the same thing over and over again every single day until they get it. Yeah. So you have to do that. And then the second thing we did at Insider that I think ultimately was very useful is that you have to have regular one-on-one meetings with your direct reports as often as possible. By the time I left, I supervised like about a hundred people and it's not possible to meet one-on-one with every single person on the staff every week. But, you know, I offered them like an office hours slot where if anyone had any worries or just wanted to ask me questions, they could, you know, come in. And I met with the direct reports once a week. And sometimes I would just sort of randomly meet with people who I felt I had less contact with than I should. And just to say, you know, please, this is your opportunity to ask me questions about what the heck is going on around here. We spend a lot of time at Harmony talking about how, as an employee, you should negotiate with your boss for a raise and a promotion. But what does that look like from a manager's point of view? If you're a new manager and you have never sat across from an employee before who is asking you for more money or demanding more money, what Mm -hmm. do you need to know going into that conversation? I've done hundreds of these and they are wildly variable. So you get some employees where they've kind of, (laughs) they've sort of avoided you for a long period of time while they've done their work. And then when the annual review period comes around, they sit in the meeting and they say, I've done everything you asked me to. Now I deserve a raise. And that's the entirety of their position. They're like, I did the work, the work you paid me for it. The work therefore must have value. So therefore you should value me and give me a raise. And it is from the employee's point of view, it is not the case that just because you did the work, the work was valuable. One thing you need to worry about is if you left the company, management might like that right? Because they're saving money on your salary and they could put that money somewhere else. They could employ someone better than you or they could employ someone in a different role. So the sort of implied threat that you might quit is often not great leverage in a negotiation. And what the management is really looking for is like, yeah, it's a cliche, but they want to know like, what value are you adding to the company? What are you creating that this company really needs? So a good negotiation will probably begin with the employee coming into that meeting with a, like a mini little presentation about themselves saying, you know, this is what I did this year, or this is what I did this quarter. These were my successes. These were the projects that went really well. These were the, the accounts I handled, and here's how much revenue came in. Salespeople can do this really easily, right? You know, they know that their salary is whatever, 90, but if they can demonstrate that they brought in, you know, 1.5 million in new business, clearly there's a very good case to give this person a raise. So coming in with data and charts and bullet points about what your successes were is enormously helpful. It's helpful for the management for a couple of reasons. First of all, managers can't actually see everything that their workers are doing, even if you're in the same room as them. Like a lot of work is actually invisible. It's a really weird phenomenon. I think employees think that they can be seen at all times, that they're like living in some kind of panopticon of employment where every move they make is recorded by their bosses. It's actually the opposite. Sometimes stuff is going on, you know, and you, the boss are like, oh, I didn't know we were doing that. So just making your own work visible is like really a good way to start, start a pay rise negotiation. 
Have you noticed a difference in the women that you've managed versus the men that you've managed and how they approach negotiations, but also just the relationship that they have with you? Honestly, there was no appreciable difference. Ever since Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook wrote that book, Lean In, I noticed that there was like a sea change among women at work. Like suddenly women were like coming into these meetings and they're like, I want this raise. There is obviously the stereotype that women get paid less because they don't negotiate or that somehow they're not as good at negotiating as men. And there's also a stereotype that men get paid more because they're you know, aggressive negotiators and stuff like that. I don't actually think that is true anymore. I think it's one of those things that may used to have been true back in the day, but is no longer true now, but people still believe it. At one point, I was joking with one of our managing editors. I was like, someone needs to show me these women who are bad at negotiating because they've, <laughs> you know, they've been pretty successful at it so far, given the raises we're handing out. I think that has changed. I'm talking about my personal experience here. There are old-fashioned industries, right, which are more dominated by men, but I've not noticed women be notably timid about negotiating their pay. I think that is very good news. I hope that it's spreading to other industries, ones that are a little bit more male-dominated. When we come back in just a second, Jim, I want to dig into those other 18 things. I want to know what else was on that original list that you sent to Allison about the things that you needed to know to be a good manager and which are your favorites and how they have morphed in the last decade or so because times have truly changed. But before we get there, negotiating is not the only thing that takes confidence when it comes to investing. Confidence is key. Confidence in your ability, your knowledge, your strategy. If you are ready to do more with your investments, visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney. You can schedule a free appointment with an advisor. You can review your current situation with an expert and get tailored investment strategies to help build, grow, and preserve your wealth. You can get started at planefe.com slash hermoney. Do it today for your future and speak with an advisor. I am talking with Jim Edwards, author of Say Thank You for Everything, The Secrets of Being a Great Manager. Catherine Tuggle is joining me for this conversation. So Jim, when you think back to the list, to the original email, what else was on it? Like what are the real pearls? The number one and this is in the book, is that hiring is 80% of everything. Getting the right person into the right job solves so many problems. So what I always advise people and what I did was your number one task should be meeting new talents and trying to hire the right people. And you should prioritize that over almost anything because it is simply the case that some people are much better at their jobs than other people. Getting the right person is just really, really important. That is a challenge that has become more difficult in recent months. We've got millions and millions of open jobs right now in the country and a lot fewer candidates, which means a lot fewer quality candidates. How do you find these people? What do you need to be doing in order to surface those good candidates besides just hanging out on LinkedIn? Mm. So the thing you cannot do is just put your job vacancy ad on the online bulletin boards and then wait for the resumes to come in via email. Really, the good way to do it is you have to actively start poaching people from other companies and you have to target specific people and take them to lunch and take them to coffee and take them for drinks and 
what have you. And this can take like a really, really long time. I worked on hires where it took me like two years to get the guy in the door from the, the beginning of the process to the end. Some people need like a long, long, long conversation with you. And then you have to wait for something to happen in their career where they have a gap. And then, you know, if you have a relationship with them, they can come aboard. If you want your recruiting to be more fair and more diverse and more interesting, you've got to delve into communities that your ads are simply not reaching. So we did that and that was enormously useful. Uh, and it was also really interesting because by sort of hunting for candidates who are not applying for your ads, you end up talking to some really interesting people that you never would have met otherwise. I love that. Jean, we're going to have to try that strategy. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go ahead and say at Harmony, we've also had some struggles hiring. In fact, we're bringing on a new hire in October and we have been waiting for her since February for her other job to conclude. But I had such hope and such excitement with her. I was like, we're going to wait. We're, we're going to make it happen. Yeah, you have to. The other thing that has really changed right now because we have this full employment and, and particularly in the media is that management's going to have to adjust its expectations about what people should be paid. And <laughs> you're going to have to start offering people like a lot more money. You know, you're going to have to pay what you would normally regard as way over the odds. But then the question becomes, well, okay, do you want these people to be good or not? Do you want the good people or the rubbish people? Because if you, if you don't pay well, you're going to get the not great people because the good people can name their price. And what you may have to do is hire fewer people, but have them be excellent rather than hire a large number of people and have them be uh, average or poor. Yeah. Quality over quantity. Yeah. Definitely quality over quantity. That's, I agree with that for sure. The weird thing is going to be when the economy flips and unemployment goes up and a lot of places will have basically sort of overpaid for people. You can never reduce someone's pay. Some interesting times ahead. It's a good time to be a worker. I'll tell you that. Yeah. What else? Give me one more from that original list that you think is just, what's the one more unsung piece of managerial wisdom that we don't talk about often enough? This became enormously valuable for me. Every week, I would insist, I'm reading it now, insist that staff tell you what worked and why it worked and what failed and why it failed. Have them do more of the things that work and stop them from doing things that fail. What would be an example of that? Well, Okay, so at Insider, so if you are writing about, you know, Apple or iPhones and stuff like that, there's a huge built-in audience. It's a very popular company. People love reading about it. And many, many people own Apple products and they want to know how they work and how they got built, stuff like that. So the audience for that kind of stuff is in the tens of millions. If you're writing about corporate leveraged loans, like, you know, bad quality corporate junk bonds and whether they will go belly up, the audience for that is actually quite small. Very few people worry on a daily basis about leveraged loans and their quality. But nonetheless, it's interesting and it's important, you know, if there is a ticking time bomb in the economy somewhere and, you know, when it goes off, it could be hugely damaging. It's, you know, it's worth having coverage of that. But you have to make sort of decisions. If like no one is reading these stories, you have to ask yourself an existential question. Why are we doing something that no one is interested in? Are we doing it because it's good journalism? If it's good journalism, why is no one reading it? It sounds to me like it's a version of the rule that you get 80% of your results from 20% of your assets, that really you should be focusing on a much smaller portion of the line items on your list. Once again, knocking off those items on your list that are not important. Last question, Jim, for you, and I'm going to flip the script a little bit. We all wonder how to manage our managers. 
we all think about our bosses and how do we manage them to help ourselves succeed as much as possible. What would be your advice to the employees who want to know, how do I improve my own career by, I don't want to say managing up, but by managing up? Mm -hmm. Well, you said it, managing up is a real skill. Like it's a real thing that people need to learn to do. And no one ever comes along and, and says to you, you know what, you need to learn to manage up. You need to learn to manage your boss's management of you. People think the stereotype of management is that it's a top-down thing. The bosses know everything that's going on, and they're going to tell you what to do, and then you have to do it, and everything just goes one way. It starts at the top of the hill and rolls downwards towards you. The fact is, particularly in larger companies, managers often cannot see what's going on everywhere all the time. They are often lacking information. And a good thing to do in terms of managing up is to constantly communicate to them what you are doing, how successful it is, show them data, particularly show them data that they don't already have, and do that like very, very regularly. So communicating upwards loudly, it's just a valuable career skill that you should have. Most people don't have it. And certainly at Insight, I had a lot of conversations with people where I basically said, you know, you need to learn to do this because I supervise 90 people. There are only 40 hours in the week. Divide one by the other, I'm paying you know five minutes a week. <laughs> That's the amount of attention I have for you. So if you don't tell me what's going on, I'm really not going to know. That's the first thing. And then the second thing, and this is so-called level four behavior, but basically, if you are a very junior employee, you're new to the workforce, this is your first job, your sort of default position generally is like, I have a problem, tell me what I should do to solve it. So your manager is constantly being asked to solve your problem for you, right? Which is fine for an entry level, and as long as you learn as you go along, that's fine. But if you're in the middle of your career and your sort of default position for solving problems at work is to immediately ask your boss how to solve the problem, you're probably not going very far. And then at level four, your sort of default position would be that you go to your boss before they even know there is a problem or as soon as you identify that they have some kind of challenge in front of them and you say, it sounds like you're having this problem, here are some options to solve it. You know, this kind of person is like properly taking care of business. They're anticipating stuff. They're anticipating issues that have not yet arisen. They're predicting their manager's needs and they're coming up with solutions and not just one solution, but they're giving their managers a choice of solutions. Someone who can do that at work is already demonstrating, first of all, that they know the job inside out, they know the company inside out, and next time you have an opportunity to promote them, you probably want to promote this woman because she's, you know, she's thinking 10 steps ahead of her own manager. Those two things are enormously valuable. Communicating upwards, performance, and with, with proper data and you know, concrete stuff, not just anecdotes, on a regular basis, not just once a year. Communicating up is massively valuable to managers. And then sort of anticipating problems and challenges and presenting your management with a set of options for solving it. Managers are time-pressed, and the more time you can save them by doing the thinking for them. Employees who have that, they're different from the other employees, and yeah. they're going to go further. They just are. A hundred percent. We are going to leave it there. Jim Edwards, the book is Say Thank You for Everything, The Secrets of Being a Great Manager. Thank you for being with us, Catherine. Thank you for sitting in. Thanks. Thanks, Jean and Jim. It was great. Well, thanks for having me. That was fun. 
We're going to dive into your mailbag in just a sec. But before we do, let me remind everyone that Her Money is supported by BCU. BCU measures its success by empowering members to achieve their financial goals. The credit union wants your banking experience to be authentic and to be friendly, which is why its products let you bank in confidence and its caring service is all about giving you peace of mind. See if you're eligible for what BCU has to offer at bcu.org. And Her Money's Catherine Tuggle joins me now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. So I have to say this episode with Jim made me start thinking about the best pieces of management advice that we've all received over the years from our bosses. And I was curious what yours was. That is a hard question, actually, for me. I mean, I feel like if you said, what's the best piece of journalism advice you were ever given, I could rattle off 10. No problem at all. But management advice... I got a really good piece of management advice from Carly Zakin, who runs The Skim, somewhere around the beginning of the pandemic, where she talked about how all of the different managers on her team meet with all of their direct reports at least 30 minutes once a week. And that especially during the pandemic, that was a great way to keep in touch with what was going on in everybody's world. And I did make an effort at that point to schedule more drop-ins, more meetings, because I'm very guilty of just wanting to plow through my own to-do list and meet all of my own deadlines and sort of figuring that everybody else will just do the same thing and it'll work out in the end, which of course it doesn't. So that was good advice. How about you? I mean, you've actually managed many more people than I have over your career. (laughs) I think my best lessons came from seeing how I was treated by some of the horrible bosses I have had over the years. I think for me, the main thing was just poor communication, like bad news on a Friday, or I would be sitting in a performance review that would happen annually, and I would be told about a mistake that I had made six months ago that apparently my boss had just continued to carry a grudge about, but had not told me anything about. He had like saved it for my review. And I was like, why can't we just address these things when they happen? And so for me, I think I've tried to be a manager who like I will give you up to the minute feedback on everything you will always know where you stand with me and every day is a new chance to prove yourself I do not believe in organizations that have this long institutional memory for mistakes where something that you did a year ago or six months ago or three months ago continues to be held over you like every day you get to show me who you are and what happened yesterday doesn't matter Because I think there's nothing more toxic than working somewhere where that's not the case, where you know that they're stewing on a mistake that you made months ago. It's terrible. They're keeping a scorecard that you don't get to see, right? Yeah. I mean, that's not fair. Absolutely not fair. I mean, I should be reading management books all the time. I feel like I need to go to management school and learn these things. I'm a very good manager of one person. I'm very proud, actually, of how I've brought along the young journalists who started with me and how they've succeeded at amazing publications and have carved out these incredible careers. But when it comes to running a team, I just, I know I have a lot to learn. Well, if it makes you feel any better, you're amazing. You are the best boss I've ever had. 
my first few months working for you, I was ready to see your crazy. I was ready to see your dark side. I was just waiting for it because I thought to myself, there's no way she could be this nice. There's got to be something. And you're just, you're amazing. So don't read any books. Just don't change. <laughs> it's because you were never my assistant. And as we know, I hate all of my assistants for the first three months. And then I love them. But for the first three months, I definitely hate them all. And then I get over it. And then we're friends for life. All right. Enough about me. Let's answer some questions. Yeah. Our first question today is from Marshawn. They write, Hi, Jean and team. I reside in Los Angeles County. I've been with my husband for 20 years and married for nine and a half. No kids or a house. I didn't work for the first four years of our marriage. He didn't want me to. Plus, I had dealt with a lot of health problems over the years. However, finally, I got a job. My husband added me to his checking account, not his savings account, and his retirement. But last year, I moved out and moved in with my mom. Our marriage just wasn't healthy. As of today, my husband and I are still married. We're filing taxes separately. He has not filed for divorce. I'm 56, but I know there's more for me on the horizon. Do you have any advice for me on what my next step should be? Jean, I appreciate any insight you might have since you have survived divorce. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for writing, Marshawn. I'm so sorry that this is the place that you find yourself. There is 100% light at the end of this tunnel, but you have to get through the tunnel first. And so... My, my big question, I guess, is why haven't you filed for divorce? It's not only his decision, it's your decision as well. And if you're not sure you're ready to make it, that's totally fine. Maybe you want to work on things, but it doesn't sound like it. So at this point, your best next step is to talk to a few divorce lawyers. And I say a few because I think you need to get some different perspectives on what this is going to cost, what the process is likely to be, what steps you need to take regarding your finances and setting yourself up for the future, what you are likely looking at in terms of a settlement when you do eventually split things up. I wouldn't get super caught up in the fact that your name is on some things and not on other things because it really depends on whether or not the assets were commingled and you're in California, which is a community property state and has laws all of its own. But I would talk to a couple of different attorneys, one maybe mediator, who's likely to get you through the process less expensively. If your husband is also feeling the way that you are about the fact that you are going to end this marriage, maybe you want to speak with a collaborative attorney who is likely, again, to limit the cost of getting through the process. Talk to your accountant as well about the steps that you need to take in order to protect yourself for the future. And lastly, you know, when I, I've told this story on the podcast before, but it has legs, so I'll tell it again. When I was getting divorced, I was told to make sure I had a good lawyer, a good accountant, and a good therapist. And I needed all three. Because although I was able to talk to some of my girlfriends and really lean on some of my girlfriends, having that weekly therapy appointment where I could just cry for an hour if that was what I needed to do helped me 
in no small way blow off steam. You're 56, you're a couple of years younger than me, so I can say with real confidence that you will come out the other side, you're gonna have a good career and life ahead of you, but sitting on it, waiting for it to happen to you, that would stress me out more than being proactive myself. That's such a great question. I think getting out ahead of it and being in control, at least from that emotional standpoint, would make a big difference. Yeah. And my experience was, and I did shop for divorce attorneys before I hired one. My experience was that it was like shopping for a financial advisor. I had meetings with several attorneys. They did not ask for money up front. They waited to ask for money until I was ready to hire them. And then I gave them a retainer. So I wouldn't necessarily worry that the process of shopping for an attorney is going to cost you a lot. It really shouldn't. Right. Right. Good point. Our next question comes to us from Aubrey. She writes, Hello, Jean. I'm a very long-time listener who has shared your podcast with many friends and colleagues over the years. Thank you so much for helping us on our financial journey. I used to have a financial advisor with Schwab, and due to a number of reasons, I no longer have the advisor. I transferred the funds over intact to Vanguard some years back. I think I've made a series of not so great moves and I want to try to correct my portfolio distribution. A while back, I went through my portfolio and sold some of the funds with the highest costs with the intention of investing in lower cost funds. Most of the high cost funds happened to be in my IRA. So the good thing at the time was that there were no capital gains. I now have about $100,000 not invested in my IRA, and I have about the same in a straight taxable brokerage account that is producing some decent capital gains and other taxable gains. I feel like the funds with the capital gains should be in my IRA, so I'm not paying taxes on those gains each year. I would like to sell the funds in my brokerage account and buy similar funds or continue on to my attempt at using the target date funds in my IRA and have the low-paying, non-invested, or less aggressively invested funds in my taxable account. I would love to hear your thoughts. So, Catherine... I know there is more to this letter from Aubrey, and I do want to get into the facts about her life, but I'm a little swimming in these details, I have to say. And I think the reason, Aubrey, that I'm swimming in these details is because you're swimming in these details. And so I'm going to frame my answer with the sort of point of helping you untangle this mess, maybe clear it up and understand it a little bit more. Catherine, go ahead and continue. Yeah. So she continues. She writes, other facts that may be helpful, but might not be necessary. I am 55 years old and don't plan to begin taking the money out of the IRA until closer to 65. My total portfolio in IRA and Roth is close to 1 million. Most of it is in a traditional IRA, and I'm currently investing my 401k and annual IRA into a Roth. I do have funds to pay the taxes on the capital gains. I don't imagine there is any way to avoid having to pay them. I don't imagine there is any way to avoid having to pay them either, Aubrey, but maybe there is some way to minimize some of them. And particularly now, with the markets down a bit, 
you really need to find yourself a financial advisor and you need to find yourself a financial advisor who can shepherd you from where you are right now, which is 55 years old with a million dollars and a lot of runway, a decade of runway to retirement. And these are your most important years, right? These are your biggest earning years. These are your years where you are going to set yourself up not just to make that money last as long as you do, but also to figure out a plan to help you withdraw the money from those accounts, to help you decumulate those assets. We focus so much on accumulation, accumulation, accumulation. And yeah, that is a crucial piece of the puzzle. But decumulation, getting the money out while keeping as much of it as possible in your own hands and putting as little of it as possible into the hands of the government is exactly what you want to be focusing on right now. It doesn't sound to me as if you have a financial advisor at Vanguard. And so I think this is a time when you go shopping for one. And that may mean moving some of the assets again, It may mean finding a fee-only financial advisor who can help you with the assets no matter where they're held. That is completely possible to do. You may want to start by reaching out to our partners at Edelman Financial Engines. I know that they do this with folks all the time, and we've gotten some really nice feedback from members of the Her Money community that have reached out to them and have started conversations about what it means to be an EFE client. So that would be a good place to start. You can also talk to colleagues, talk to friends about financial advisors that they have, that they're happy with. But right now, there are a lot of different accounts here. There are a lot of different pieces here. You need to wrap it all in a plan And not just a plan that you're going to execute on this year, but a plan that's going to take you from this year to next year to the year after that all the way through to retirement. And so that's how I would start. Yeah. You know, one thing that sticks out to me, Jean, in having listened to so many financial advisors who we've worked with over the years, giving women a plan to follow, is how much thought is involved in terms of taxable accounts and non-taxable accounts and when to take social security and when to take required minimum distributions. You know, there's so many moving pieces here that I think will actually help clear things up. Yes. And this is not a yes, but it's a yes. And you gave me the picture of your investments, but you didn't give me the picture of your life, Aubrey. And that's sort of what's missing here. When we look at how this money should be managed, it should be managed with your life goals in mind. When do you want to retire? Where do you want to retire? What do you envision doing after you stop working in the job that you have now? Do you think you'll move? Do you think you'll downsize? Do you think you'll start a small business? How are you set up in terms of long-term care? How are you set up in terms of real estate? Do you own a home? Like I, I don't know any of that stuff. I'm missing those pieces. And so I absolutely would not want to make decisions about your life 
based solely on your investments because it's really just one piece of the picture. Thank you so much, Jean. Thanks, Catherine. Let me just take a second to tell everyone that today's episode is also sponsored by PayPal Honey. I am a big online shopper, always have been. I'm sure some of you are too. It saves me time and Thanks to Honey, it often saves me money. So if you haven't heard of Honey, it is a free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes. And essentially, it applies the best ones that it finds to your carts at checkout. For example, Honey recently saved me 20 bucks on a new pair of running shoes, and it was super easy to use. When you check out, what'll happen is that you'll see the Honey button drop down, and all you have to do is click Apply Coupons, wait a few seconds as it searches, and if Honey finds a working coupon, you'll watch the price drop in real time. So if you're not using Honey today, you could be missing out on substantial savings. It is free. It's easy. It only takes a few secs to install. You can get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash hermoney. Joinhoney.com slash her money. And in today's Thrive, how much does it really cost to get your first pet? I can tell you how much it costs to take Norman today to the groomer. Norman has far less hair than he had a couple of hours ago because unbeknownst to me, he was a little matted around the ears and they had to cut his ears really short. Not his ears, but the hair on his ears. When I was a child, I had a book called Clifford the TV Dog about a dog named Clifford, you can look him up, who liked to watch TV. And Norman actually looks a lot like Clifford. I don't think Clifford was a cockapoo. I think Clifford was a terrier. Terriers have far less hair than cockapoos, which just gives you some sense of how Norman looks right now. But look, it is incredibly easy to decide that you want to welcome a new pet into your family. What's less easy is figuring out how much it'll cost over time. At Her Money, we've got a full breakdown of exactly how much you should put away before bringing that adorable puppy home. First, you should know that the annual cost of taking care of a pet is around $1,700 for a dog and around $1,100 for a cat. That does not include matting, by the way, but it is an average monthly cost of about $90 to $140 with a commitment of 10 to, if you're lucky, 18 years. So take a look at your budget, take a look at your monthly spending, make sure you have room for those extra costs. Expenses are also usually higher the first year that you have your pet. That's because of physical exams, vaccinations, microchipping, spaying, neutering. You should also get your pet started on preventative flea, tick, and heartworm medications, which they will take every month. All together that first year, you can expect to spend anywhere between $500 and $2,000, depending on where you live. Next on the shopping list are all the necessities, all the comforts that your pet will need at home. A bed, a collar, a litter box, foods, treats, toys, grooming supplies, a crate. And then, if your pet is like Norman, another crate, because they're bigger than you expected that they would be. And you can estimate at least... $200 up front for these items, but remember, many will become recurring costs. There's also training. There's daycare, especially for puppies. Group sessions are cheaper than one-on-one, but overall, several hundred dollars is what it costs for a handful of classes, and doggy daycare can run $100 a day. Last, 
definitely not least, you're going to want pet insurance. There are so many unexpected healthcare emergencies or chronic conditions that can happen to your pet. Insurance companies like Healthy Paws, that's who we chose for Norman, they can cover as much as 90% of the cost of surgeries or hospital stays. And with pet insurance, you can be sure you're financially prepared. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks so much to Jim Edwards for showing us what it takes to be a great manager. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon. 